Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So today I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Gillian Charlesworth, who's CEO of BRE. Hello, Gillian. Hello. Very good to see you, Marion. And I was thinking, we've met a few times, but we haven't really had a good natter. We haven't really good, no. had a good chat, I don't think. So I'm really, I was really looking forward to, I was going to say grilling you today. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> But have it, having a good uh, having a good chat with you today because you're one of these sort of names and faces that I see or come across. But um, so yes, yeah, so I'm really pleased to uh, to have you on. Yeah, well, I'm delighted to be here, and I I think that probably you were becoming more involved in RICS just as I was winding down there and moving on. So that probably explains the the newness really of of the relationship. But um, I've been very impressed with your social media presence and profile and uh, also your contribution to RICS, which um, is fantastic. And I think... Well, thank you, know, well, thank you very actually. much for that. <laughs> I'm blushing. People can't see that. Yeah, the social media thing, there's no art to it. You know, I think most people can tell themselves taught, but you just need to put yourself out there sometimes. And it's really interesting when I look at how people come to Blue Box and come to the Surveyor Hub and, you know, come to our events and and different things. It's not all from the mailing list. And a lot of people concentrate on thinking they need to have a mailing list to communicate with people. But actually, I've got, you know, I've got quite a few people on Instagram that I'm starting to use now. You know, so I've got the, the Facebook pages. Um, and obviously LinkedIn and LinkedIn has been more my network. That's where I started to talk about surveying and women surveying and, and those things. Yeah. The one I've just, I mean, I'm on there, but I just can't get my head around is Twitter. Oh. Yes. And I've tried, I... but I just think, you know what? It's just not for me. I'm on there. Yeah. I look, but you know, I just can't well, do it. <laughs> well, I think I do use Twitter for putting out, you know, short messages just to kind of keep the, the profile of, of BRE uh, and what what we're doing, but it is, and unfortunately, of all the channels, it's probably the one that has ended up as you know some people sadly call it a bit of a sewer compared to LinkedIn, which is a much politer, more professional forum. I would say so. I, I would say that you've probably made the right decisions there. I mean, there are only so many hours in the day anyway. Let's face it, in terms of social media management. I know. And it's really funny because a lot of people say, Marion, you're all over social media. And I think, I'm not really. <laughs> you know, you can plan and schedule some things in. You know, sometimes you're just posting at the right time. I don't spend all of my time on on social media. I do like to go in the Survey Hub Facebook group and get a bit geeky over some of the things that, that the guys and girls are seeing. But I don't spend all my time doing it. But it's, it's all about perception, isn't it? And what people think you're doing. And, oh, yes. and I guess yes. stepping out to that, to that visibility. You mentioned there your work at RICS. Tell me a bit about your your career, because there'll be people out there who 
I've heard of you. A lot of people who may not know who you are and thinking, why am I even bothering to chat to Gillian? But you used to work at RICS. Tell me a bit about your role that you had there. Yes, well, my my back my career, which has been slightly strange, has probably mostly been defined by working with professions and sectors to uh, mainly on standards and professional regulation, but also on promotion, building the brand, if you like, building the profile and influencing and the related policy development. So what's, you know, what are governments doing that is relevant to the profession that I'm working with? Um, what opportunities come out of government action, government legislation? What do professions need to respond to when it comes to regulatory requirements? So that really has been the large part of my career. At one time, I worked with the accountancy profession, but um, in that regard, uh, and I also spent a stint with the drinks industry, actually, which was good. Obviously, much more, com- well, I say much more commercial. I shouldn't put it like that, really. But I thought, I thought you were going to say, <laughs> I thought you were going to say good for a night out. Well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I, I do recall, and this is going back a while, but uh, I do recall the sherry bottle being brought out halfway through the committee meetings with the with the sherry shippers. That was always um, <laughs> it's amazing to think how working practices have changed, but they may still be doing it. But I moved on, but um, it was 16 years ago that I started working at RICS and was very taken with working in the property and built environment construction infrastructure sector. For the obvious reason, I think, it's so important for us all. It's so relevant to us all. It's fundamentally important. Um, And of course, over that period, I think it's become very apparent that this industry is responsible for huge amounts of economic, social and environmental impact. So working with that sector the sector that we're in, I should say, I'm still there, um, is very fulfilling, I feel. It's, you feel as if you're doing something that's highly relevant to everybody and has the opportunity, potential, to really make an impact, whether it's through standard setting or promoting careers in the industry, bringing in great talent or driving the sustainability agenda. I think, you know, there are lots of very interesting and pertinent opportunities. So in my 15 years at RICS, I had a a good mix of experience across the regulatory team, the external affairs and policy team, the UK in particular, and also eventually ended up being the person who led the promotion of, of RICS's brand around the world, where it is so fantastically well valued in many in many markets. So yeah, it was a great it was a great period. I never thought that I would leave RICS actually, but another opportunity came along. So a year ago I moved on. And you're now a, a BRE. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Yes. So uh, one thing I find interesting when I hear surveyors grumble we're very good at grumbling or commenting is that actually you know are there enough surveyors working at RICS and do you need surveyors working at RICS you know it's just because you're not a surveyor doesn't mean that you're not interested in the built environment and you know just like we all have our our superpowers which I often talk about you know that people have have 
strengths and skills in other areas, not just going into properties and inspecting them. Yeah. And I do hear that a lot. And for me, I think it's it's really important to have non-surveying professionals as part of it and part of what we do. Even so much as years ago, I used to run a complaints team. You know, you had people who would um, handle these, any everything from a post-valuation query all the way through to a large defect and valuation claim. And I specifically mm. didn't want them trained too much in property and the way that we do things so that they would ask the obvious question. You know, if it yes. was, if it was, okay. if they could understand it themselves, it would make a, a different angle, a different take, uh, particularly when you're dealing, uh, sort of dealing with, with customers. So it's important that we have that variety of people within, and it's diversity, obviously, but you know, the variety yeah. of people. And but I think sometimes there's a big gap between what goes on in the world with RICS and the built environment, right the way through to the jobbing surveyor on the ground who might work for an SME and occasionally sort of gets updates and guidance from RICS. And they can't mm. necessarily, you know, the, the gap is sometimes too far to understand how the work that you used to do with policy and government and what's going on and how that actually shapes the work mm. that they do. And we need to pay really a lot of attention to that gap and to bring it to bring it closer so that we understand. And for me, that was one of the reasons why I went for governing council. I just thought, well, no, I didn't think how hard can it be, but I did think, well, I've got to give it a, give it a go. And is it possible? Can somebody like me go for it? And what I was really pleased about is, uh, unlucky for me, is they changed the application process. So it was more accessible. It wasn't just about the, the big boards and companies that you might have run. It was actually a really nice process to go through. Scary when people are asking you about your campaign. And I'm thinking, what campaign? But, mm-hmm. um, you know, but bringing that gap... And for me, it's been really insightful yeah. to look at what the RICS does around the world and actually how that does really filter through to affect the surveyor on the ground, you know, and the work that they yes. do. Yeah, no, I, I think I think all these are very fair observations and questions. I mean, I think the first point to make is that there are there is a whole body of surveyors who do work for RICS, so very much, a, you know, an essential team within the institution. I think the second point is that I, I would I'd pick up on your point about the need for a range of professionals to run what is in effect a professional institution. There are a number of, of course, generic roles, finance, HR, but also, as you, as you said, um, the influencing and policy side of it. And the way I was used to see this was to, to see it as a partnership between members of the profession and um, the, the, the members of the RICS team who were professionals in influencing or public policy. Because actually it's a little bit like any technical product and, and marketing. You need, you need the expertise to create the product, but you also need somebody who can translate the importance, features and benefits of that product for non-technical decision makers and in this case it's government you know what do we want them to do in terms of legislation there's almost a translation task to take the technical expertise and professional expertise of the profession and make it relevant to policy makers so I was used to take the approach of a joint effort go to meetings with politicians together so that you have the policy and influencing expertise you open the door but you need the the technical expertise to make the 
make the point. And I, I do recall once I was in a meeting with some members of the profession in the building, the RSCS building on Parliament Square, which of course is fantastically well placed for influencing the British government. And one of them said to me, you need to be more influential across the road. And I said, no, you need to be. You're the profession, you're the expert, you're the person really that policymakers need to hear from. I will help to get the meeting or open the door, but actually we need you as expert practitioners. We're not asking you to give up your day job, but we need your input into that dialogue. That's the strength of it, that partnership approach to building the credibility and recognition that the profession deserves. And it, and it, it certainly is a, it's a never-ending task, both to convince successive governments and ministers, and we're talking mainly about the UK here, but a number of different housing ministers. Yeah, what, 20, something years. like that we've had? Well, <laughs> it's a never-ending task to, to restart that dialogue all the time. And, it, and I think, sadly, you can never fully succeed. But equally... The other real challenge is then communicating back to the profession, as you suggested, what's actually being achieved. And I've, I've had so many conversations with people who come in to governing council or to a committee or a group or a board, say, gosh, I didn't realise that RICS was doing all of this. It is a huge challenge because you could say, well, actually, we have, we have mentioned that in, in modus or in, in a newsletter. But of course, people have very limited time to, to mm. read up on what's going on. So it, it is challenging. I think the strength of the RICS qualification in, in many countries is testament to the, the excellence you know, that the profession offers and the unique skill set, actually, that surveyors bring. And, it, yeah, I mean, I, I was very proud to work with, with RICS uh, and the profession for many years. And I, of course, in my new role, still have dealings with many of the same types of people and indeed actual people. So I'm very pleased that I haven't left the profession behind completely. Well, it's that mountain of value you have, as they say, the, 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 uh, yes. the experience you've got in the industry then, then leads you to your next role. So tell me yeah, a, a bit about that because some listeners may not know much about the BRE. Whenever I think of BRE, I think of BRE 251, which is the digest uh, all about hairline cracks and size of cracks that were lots of surveys refer to. But perhaps yeah. sort of explain a bit about the, the BRE and what, what it is. Yes. Well, I probably ought to start with a little bit of history because it's quite important in explaining the BRE that you see today and perhaps envisaging the BRE that we might be tomorrow. The BRE was for three quarters of its nearly 100 years was a government agency. So until 1997, it was an agency of what is now Ministry of um, Homes, Communities and Local Government. And in 1997, it was privatised, sold off. But at that time, the industry was very keen to see BRE continue to do what it had done. And that is to carry out deep expert scientific research into buildings and um, building physiology, building performance. 
And to carry on doing that, the industry obviously felt we need that. We need a body which is holding us to account on standards and performance and safety. So although the original business model was was actually a, a management buyout by two of the existing senior people, uh, or a group of senior people. The organisation was fairly rapidly uh, turned into a charitable trust. So the, when you hear people talk about the BRE Trust, that is a charitable body and it is the owner of the BRE Group, which is the commercial entity that I'm, I'm the chief executive of. And the purpose of the group is to carry out the activities, which I'll come to in a second, but to make a surplus from those activities, which it then provides to the trust, which continues to carry out that research role. So that's the model. Now, we we as a commercial entity don't just do anything to make money. Everything we do is intrinsically part of that purpose of improving the built environment through scientific research, testing, standards, certifying buildings and parts of buildings and construction products. So we're providing assurance to the construction sector, the property sector, and the users of buildings or the end users of um, those processes across some core areas, biosafety, Uh, construction product safety, building security, parts of construction parts such as sprinklers, air quality monitors, um, fire alarms, those sort of things. And also, of course, our BRIAM certification scheme, which assesses the sustainable performance of built assets. So it's very much about improving the built environment enhancing performance against sustainability goals, safety and security. So that's what we're about. Having been privatised in 1997, the task then and remains to make sure that we can do all of that in a profitable way. And one of the interesting questions I've had from time to time, including this morning from a journalist, is how can you do all those good things um, and but do them commercially and make money out of them? And my answer is very much based on what I've just said, that we we want to make a surplus in order to plough it back into more of our purpose, so very much a profit purpose business. But we don't compromise on standards. That would, And this is very much where the, there's a commonality with the RICS position. Yes, you want to grow and you want more people to use your services or, in RICS's case, qualify. You're not going to compromise on standards to achieve that. That's the core of the brand proposition, the standards of the certification, the testing. So we are in that slightly unusual position where clients come to us and say, we want you to test this piece of kit, and we might fail it. But that's the nature of of what we're doing. It's about maintaining standards and enforcing them, in effect, uh, but providing assurance in the process. So... Not a dissimilar mission in many ways, but it, it's more about parts of buildings rather than professionals in this case. I think really interesting because a lot of the things I talk about at Blue Box and uh, the Surveyor Hub Mastermind where I coach small businesses is actually mm. about being a values-driven business. Yes. And even yes. from a, a personal 
point of view. You know, there are the ways that you want to live, the ways that you want to work. And effectively, they are your own personal standards. Yes. But there's a, a, lot of, a real mindset blocker for a lot of people that, you know, they think they can't earn money whilst doing good at the same time. Yes. And not working all the hours God sends, you know. So, um, so it's interesting, actually, that through a, an organization like BRE and RICS, there are some others out there, you know, that, that have that exactly the same model, just sort of slightly different, you know, that you're there to, yes. do, to do good at the end of the day. Yes. And I think um, we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that just because your mission is intrinsically useful in the, in the public interest, that you are an ethical business, equally... Mm that just because your product is, you know, not fundamentally important, but, you know, is, is, is useful and enjoyable, that you don't have those values and that you're not. And I, I, think, I think it's been very good over the recent years to see more businesses recognising that there is a wider social purpose than merely making a return to shareholders. And I think that, that sense of what uh, businesses, you know, what corporations are for has has changed in recent years, that there is that need to make a contribute a conscious contribution to the environment, to wider society, to your employees. And of course, there's always a, uh, hopefully, a synergy between all of the different interests. And I think that's, for me personally, I think that's an important goal for us, that you get that synergy of interest between employees and employers and society and businesses whatever the nature of the business. For me personally, and I think you probably just alluded to the same point, it is important for me to be doing something which has a very strong intrinsic sense of purpose. And that's one of the reasons I took this role, because I felt there was an opportunity to really make a difference to, to some of the biggest challenges of our, of our age in terms of safety and sustainability. So that is important. But I don't think working in a business which doesn't have those deeper goals is, uh, is, you know, cannot be values driven. I think mm. um, it's really important that we, we, we see the, the, uh, the opportunities as rounded, whatever the type of business we're working in. And I think the difficulty sometimes is companies have corporate social responsibility yeah. targets and marketing fluff, and it all sounds good at the top. But communicating that down all the way through to, you know, the individual yeah. in, in the office or on the ground and getting that aligned vision and mission and purpose and all of those things is, is really, mm. really hard. And I think for, for individuals and small SMEs, sometimes it's allowing yourself to have permission to work like that and to, to shape yeah. the business like that. The UN Sustainable Development yeah. Goals are a great framework to get started yeah. So the RICS sort of calls it their Value the Planet campaign. Yes, it's an it's, excellent campaign. Yeah. yeah, and it's something that that we do in uh, at Blue Box and through the Surveyor Hub. And I guess really for us, it's more about social impact. For me, on, on a personal level, it's about making sure people out there have a roof over their heads that's safe, warm and dry, that they're a built yes. environment, that they live in their communities, help them to thrive, not just survive. Yeah. And my Absolutely. way of doing that is through helping the surveyors be the best that they can be that reels off the tongue right now it, it hasn't for a long time it takes a while to work some of those things out and it's constantly yes. moving 
but the SDGs are a really nice framework for people to yes. to get started. And it's some of yeah. the things that we we talk about in the Surveyor Hub and in the, the Mastermind as well. What do you think that surveyors could do more of to be to be sustainable? Well, I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the policy arena. Now, I know it's not given to everybody to spend time trying to influence government policy. But if we look at the current planning proposals, for instance, or that are just that are just emerging from um, from Whitehall and Westminster, it, I think that for those surveyors who've got the time, making an expert contribution to not only the policy development process, but actually to facilitating the actual planning process when it changes, as it changes, as it undoubtedly will, I think, under these proposals, to try and make sure that, you know, that that whole professions are asserting professional values and expertise into the dialogue. And I know it's not easy to do that. It takes time. It's sometimes a rather thankless, fruitless task. But... I do think that surveyors know, and they always used to say to me, we know what works. So I think making sure that you can make your contribution by following the standards that RICS sets, and making sure that you know what those standards are, but also pushing for higher standards, for better, for ra- more rapid progress, and really keeping up to date, making sure that you know what the latest solutions are in some ways. They're not terribly sophisticated. Um, I think a lot of people are waiting for some new amazing solution to, um, particularly to retrofitting existing buildings. Not sure that's going to happen. Let's see. But I, you know, I do think that, that all professions have a responsibility to uphold standards and to push progress. I remember a few years ago having an, an extremely interesting conversation involving Tim Neal who, of course, is, is president of RICS, always, to me, a shining example of somebody who is a, an ethical professional. And we were having a conversation about, it was in the context of regulating the profession, and somebody made the comment that a professional is somebody who's got ethics and, and expertise and follows the standards. And, and Tim really eloquently put the point that, no, it's actually about more than that. It's about innovation. It's about pushing forward. It's about using your expertise to make things better. And I think that is a, is a really important point. And I recognise that not every member of the profession has time to get involved. But for those who have, I think it's a really important role that professions can play in um, in, in addressing what is an enormous challenge in terms of uh, the impact of climate change. So, yeah, I think, I think there's a sort of big picture contribution. And then I think there is making sure that, you know, whatever your role, that you're up to date, you know what, um, what will make the difference in terms of the actual work that you're doing, the project that you're working on, the property that you're working on, to really drive that, that change that we need to see. And I guess it's like anything, if it's a priority for you, you'll work day and night and tirelessly to make yeah. it happen and to, to make the change. But there are lots of ways that members can get involved. 
You don't have to go for governing council. You don't have to go <laughs> all the way. From our part, there's a surveyor hub where your opinion can, uh, you know, you can give your opinions. But also the RICS has its own RICS insights community that surveyors yes. can join and have their own you know, sort of conversations yeah. in there, which is definitely Absolutely. worth um, yeah. worth doing. And actually, you know, for surveyors to make sure you are signed up to the mailing list. Yes. You know, the old GDPR issues where everyone's had to opt out before you opt in. So there are small ways that you can just keep in touch. And even actually sometimes just to do the work, to have a think about what's important to you, Mm. you know, what's important to your team, even ask your team, your employees, you know, why why do we, why are you a surveyor? Why do you come to work today? Mm. You know, really Mm. under, really understand them. Yeah. I often had those conversations when I was working more closely with the profession. And the answer very often is people who really care passionately about improving the built environment or addressing issues like flood resilience or creating big infrastructure projects, which have such a big impact on the economy. Uh, You know, everything, the full scope Surveying always struck me as one of the most fascinating professions to get into because there's so much scope. Uh, And it is, uh, well, I think should be one of the more strategic professions because surveyors join up a lot of the dots between different areas. And um, I do think there is a big opportunity to make an impact. There really is. So can I ask you, you know, you're a uh, you're a CEO, one of the few women CEOs that that are out there. When you're at school, did you did you really think you'd <laughs> you'd be at these dizzy heights? <laughs> no, definitely not. I, I do a lot of career coaching as well, and I do often ask people where they want to get to, whilst all, also recognizing that I, I I was ambitious. I wanted to keep making progress. But I never set out, I never said to myself, I want to get to the top. I just wanted to keep making progress. And it really wasn't until I was a member of, you know, well-established as a member of an executive team that I began thinking, actually, I think I want to go to the next level. So I think, I mean, I'm sure everyone's different. There will be people who absolutely know, you know, when they're 12, that they want to run something. I think my five-year-old daughter's there. (laughs) She wants to be the boss. <laughs> well, that's good. Good for her. Good for her. But uh, that isn't. That was not my. That was not my thinking. And I heard but you I trained as a. I heard you trained as a chef. Was that I right? I did. Yes, I, I did mention my strange career early earlier in the conversation, at a time when perhaps a lot of uh, my peers were beginning to think about having families. I wanted to do something creative. And at the time, I was working with the accountancy profession, which, you know, to be honest, is a little bit dry sometimes. And um, so I went to train at Prulee's School of Food and Wine, a well-known figure on our screens these Mm. days, a very formidable Mm. person. So I ended up working in the food and drink industry for a while, which is how I ended up working with the drink sector to um, uh, as a with it in a trade body to to stock upon sherry. That's yeah. right. Yes, yeah. there were the perks. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and I certainly don't regret doing it, but I could see that it wasn't going to be my career path for the rest of my life. It, it just, it didn't tick enough boxes for me. I'm very glad that I can cook. That's always a nice skill to have, but uh, 
I'm very comfortable being back, you know, more of a, a desk-based type of job. That sounds a bit boring and bureaucratic. I don't mean it to sound like that, but um, I'm exercising different skills in this role. But no, I think, I think that with, and I would say this when I'm talking to people about careers, you have to, to some extent, sometimes just take a, a bit of a punt on something and see what happens. Because if you don't, you might well regret it later that you didn't have a go. And then even if you think, actually, this isn't really quite for me, the main thing is learn from it. And one of the learning points for me from that period, there were many, but one of them was working in a small business. And I think that's never wasted because it enables you to have that empathy with people who, as you said earlier, are often all they can do is, you know, just focus on the on the work in hand. So the idea of a body like RSCS trying to communicate uh, with that group uh, in the profession, it, it becomes you do, you do really gain an understanding of the challenges and why sometimes it's frustrating. Think, why don't people know what we're doing? It's because they've got their heads down just working. In a small business, you have to do everything. So I think that was... Um, and that, that and was that's useful. about... Yeah, that's about understanding your audience and your, your yes. membership. And yes. Things. Absolutely. I think one thing yeah. that I found, you know, as I've worked in a corporate... And then I worked for myself and now I work with a, a small team. Yes. Is, 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 I think sometimes it's good to, to do that personal development and that professional development soft skills, whatever you want to call it, but to yeah. understand the kind of person that you are. And mm. I found that actually I don't grow in a corporate. I don't really want no. to work with a big organization. And yet it's quite lonely working by yourself. Um, hence yes. I set up a podcast where I can chat to lots of people uh, <laughs> but I found I found a nice happy sweet spot you know with mm-hmm. uh, with blue box yes. having enough people to work with but enough independence and and but it takes a while to to find those things out but to get curious about the way you want to work and who you want to work with and your values and all of those things so mm-hmm. you know that's part of your your development of your career as a as a surveyor and very often we get to the top just by being there the longest and knowing the yeah. most technical information, but that isn't how you run businesses, isn't how you, you lead. You do quite mm. a lot for uh, women. Are you still part of the Women, is it the Women of the Future Network? Tell me a bit about yes. that. Yeah, I very much am. This uh, RICS has been sponsoring the Women of the Future Awards category for built in, the built environment, construction, infrastructure, property for probably six years now, I think. And I used to um, be the person who did the, did the judging for that. And as a result of that, we set up a network, which essentially is sort of fostered in the, the usual way these days through a WhatsApp group of all the people who've been shortlisted for that award. They're not all surveyors, but quite a lot of them are. All the people who are shortlisted are obviously the winners. And it's proved to be an incredibly good support group. I'm sure every person in there would say they get something out of it that um uh, and and shown me I suppose uh, well provided me let's say with the view that one of the best things we can do in terms of supporting women is literally that provide support provide networking Uh, a number of business opportunities come out of that group for people a lot of people in there have undertaken new jobs been promoted uh, including me, <laughs> that matter. Um, 
and really supported each other. Some have set up businesses, done what you, you know, what you did, left large corporates and set up businesses. And it's, it, it is a random group of people in many ways, but there's this common theme of, of the women of the future um, network. And obviously there's a much wider network there, which, which those women are part of as well. And I know that people that in the network see the benefit not only of being within their category, but also of meeting women from the other categories in the awards. So, yes, I think that's that's a great initiative. The person who runs that, Pinky Lilani, is, I don't know whether you've met her, Marion, but she is an absolute force of nature, an incredible person who's grown this, these awards, the Asian Women of Achievement, Women of the Future, from zero. And she's got a tiny team, but she's having a huge impact. So very much still involved with that. In fact, BRE is going to be sponsoring the annual Women of the Future Summit this, this November, which I suspect will be a virtual event. So yes, very committed to that. And also now branching out into um, mentoring other women in the sector. I I found that, and you you probably found this yourself, that you you get quite a lot of invitations to join panels as a CEO. I think the... um, Particularly as a female CEO, if we're honest, I think you tick a box. But I always think, well, that's a great opportunity. I'm going to take every I'm going to take every opportunity that I get, particularly on this theme, but not, not exclusively on this. And a few weeks ago I did a panel with construction news, and I perhaps rather foolishly at the end said that I had a couple of mentoring slots available. And I, I I wouldn't say I've lost count, but quite a few women contacted me. <laughs> um, and uh, I've had some fascinating conversations with, with them. Uh, a lot of commonality in what they, what, what they need, what the, the issues. And quite often it's women who are not quite making progress and they just don't understand why. People are not being honest with them about why they're not progressing. And um, they don't quite know what they're good at. Uh, they don't know whether their ambition is recognised. There's a real common theme. So I've had some very interesting conversations with women in the industry in the last few weeks on that, on those mm. sort of things. I, I find coaching women really interesting. And again, sort of similar, they, they haven't done that. They've worked hard on their career and their qualifications, yes. but they haven't done the inner work of, well, yes what do I like to do even? Who do I want to work with? You know, what, mm. what inspires mm. me? Because that can yes. help really shift and make a difference to what you do day to day. Do you even want to be the boss? You know, yes, exactly. all, absolutely yes. all of, of those things. And also I think that there are different ways of being a leader. Being at yes. the top doesn't necessarily mean that yes. you are the leader. There is leadership in, in, in lots of different ways. Um, yeah. I think the uh, networks like Women of, Women of the Future and awards are great. I think women should go for more awards and put themselves forward because it's a way of getting vis- visible. Yes. One yes. thing I do have an issue with is age because for me, on the one hand, I'm very much, you start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. 
you know, and you just, we need to just start making a difference wherever that is, you know, so attracting younger women to go through in their careers and supporting them through, you know, through the, the difficult middle age years, if you like, now is going to be important. But there's a few of us who've been around, you know, and haven't quite gone yet. And I, a couple of times, I remember being asked by the company I was with at the time to be put forward for Young Surveyor of the Year. And I think the limit there is 35 and I was 37. And I felt like such an old hag had been <laughs> at 37 because I wasn't young enough. You know, and there's, there's lots of, uh, of, of things like that. But, you know, what I then started to do, okay, well, there isn't, you know, there isn't anything for me. Why don't I just create it? And I've actually got quite a strong network through my Women in Surveying, which isn't an organisation because there are something like 67 different women's organisations in the built environment. We do not need any more. No. But it's basically a gaggle of ladies. We have a Facebook group. I've got a WhatsApp group. Anything goes, whether you've got a bad day, need career advice, or yeah. you know, just need to talk, talk something through. And building yeah. that network of support is so important. Yes. Because where you have the most support is where you'll have the most success. And that's why investing yeah. in things like coaching or mentoring or seeking those things mm. out can be really important. When I was starting out, I was a member of Women in Property. And oh, they, yes. ran, yeah. they ran a they run a quite successful mentoring scheme. And I was mentored by Ros Kerslake, um, who was, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, she was at Prince's Trust, I think, at the time. Yes. I mean, and um, was yeah. it Prince's Trust? I can't remember. Her office was near the near the palace. I remember being really yes. really impressed, and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and I, and she was asking me questions about and what did I want to do with my life, and yes. you know, and I, and I was a jobbing surveyor, so far away from this world, but it yeah. always stuck with me that someone's asking me those questions. Therefore, I need to explore it, and that got me into personal development and and all of those things. Yes, um, it yes. can make quite a, quite a difference on your career, can't it? Yeah. I think it can. You're just putting me in mind of something I always used to say about driving in London, which is quite hard. If you know where you're going, it's going to be easier. And I think you're absolutely right. And one of the, I mean, I always start with, with saying to people, do you know what your strengths are? What, what, what would your colleagues say about you? Have you asked them? And get some feedback. What am I good at? What could I be better at? What could I do differently? And um, and then secondly, use that information to think, well, if I'm not very happy where I am at the moment, what could I transfer these skills to? Because most skills have a level of transferability. The other thing that I always say to people, and you've kind of touched on this yourself, is that, and you can't necessarily answer this in one go, but it's really important to work out not only um, the type of work that you want to do, that you think you'll be good at, you can thrive in, uh, but also the type of organisation and the values that you believe in. And it's absolutely important to work that out. I completely agree. But thirdly, and I think this is the one that people don't really think about so much, what level do I want to get to in the sense of where will I be most comfortable? And I knew that I would feel comfortable as the CEO and I wanted that responsibility and that level of um, if you like, um, authority almost. You know, I wanted the responsibility of being the one to make the decisions. And I knew I'd feel comfortable. 
with that level of responsibility. And I wanted I wanted to put into practice some of my leadership ideas and to take the opportunity to create the sort of organisation that I believe in. As you said earlier, that is not for everybody, but there are other ways of leading and influencing. So I think it's really important, um, particularly for women, to have a decent understanding of those three things. You know, am I doing the right mm. kind of work? Does this organisation meet my values expectations? And what sort of level do I want to get to? And if I can't get to that level here, I need to go and find a different opportunity. But I guess also on that last point there, you've got to learn your learn to trust your gut instincts, learn to understand your discomfort zone yes. and what's possible. And there's a great book um, called Playing Big by Tara Moore, which I'd recommend. I'll put a link in the show notes. Because actually we, as women, we do play small because we don't think it's possible, you know, and and that's where I guess role models come in, being able to see the clear route. And when you were talking about driving in London, my my first thoughts were, my memories of driving in London when I worked there was the Croydon U-turn. Because when I worked in Croydon, I got very good at doing U-turns when I was going the wrong way. (laughs) And that was was okay. But thinking about it as more of a compass, perhaps, than a well-laid plan and route, so long as you're heading in the right direction, you'll get to where you need to go, you know, and you you can work some of those things out. Well, look, Gillian, it's been really fascinating talking to you today. Thank you very much for your time. And um, I hope to get to uh, catch up again soon. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure, Marion. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.